You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hey there, Richard. How you doing? I'm doing fine. Thank you. Good. I am Glenn Lowry, the Glenn Show at BloggingHeads.tv. I teach at Brown University, the Watson Institute for International Public Affairs. One of my employers sponsors the Glenn Show, and I'm with Richard Epstein, who is a professor of law at the University of Chicago and uh, a, a towering figure in legal scholarship, I might say. I mean, I remember, what was your first book of yours? The Takings book. I remember reading The Taking. We were all excited about it in Cambridge, man. And then uh, you had this big book on anti-discrimination law, uh, which was prescient, I think, in many ways. And uh, God knows what else you've done right there at the University of Chicago. You guys, the father of law and economics and all that kind of stuff. So it's very good to have you at the Glenn Show, Richard. You know, it's very good. Yeah, I just have to make one correction. I am still at the University of Chicago as a senior lecturer, but my full-time academic appointment for the last 10 years has been at NYU, in which I um, obviously am the odd man out in one sense, but have generally had cordial and friendly relations with all my colleagues. Thanks for correcting me. You moved from Chicago to NYU as your center, but you still lecture at Chicago from time to yes, time? what I do is I have a contract which makes my uh, tenured appointment at the NYU, uh, but I have a senior lectureship, uh, which I take every um, spring quarter at Chicago, and I teach usually two things, one a course, and then I've taught a seminar in Roman law at the University of Chicago now since 1973, which is my breeding ground for intellectuals, future Supreme Court short clerks, and hopefully someday a Supreme Court justice. Okay. Well, uh, from your mouth to God's ears, as far as I'm concerned, Rich. <laughs> Listen, uh, you are there in Chicago, and Chicago seems to be uh, ground zero for something or another. Um, I just uh, uh, looked at my uh, news feed this morning. 64 shot, five fatally in Chicago over the last weekend. Uh, last week was the uh, Chicago was the site of uh, rioting and uh, looting on North Michigan Avenue. Things seem to be falling apart. And uh, I just wondered what the perspective is from Hyde Park on all of these things and from the law school about all of these things that are well, happening. Actually, you know, I don't live in Hyde Park anymore. We moved downtown and I live at, on North Michigan Avenue at Ground Zero. Uh, well, I mean, it, it's a very difficult kind of an arrangement to sort of understand. I mean, there's a lot of sympathy for the uneasiness associated um, with the protest. Uh, some of them, of course, uh, uh, deal with George Floyd, and everybody understands what the sort of the emotional salience of that is. Uh, the city now has a progressive mayor, a woman named Lori Lightfoot, who is, in fact, a graduate of the University of Chicago Law School. And uh -huh. she ran as an anti-establishment candidate, and walked is the only word to describe it, a very well-respected figure in Chicago politics, Tony Preckwinkle. Um, and it was a difference of age and temperament. Uh, she comes into office, and, and what she finds out is what everybody finds out, Glenn, that it's much easier to be a critic on the outside than it is to be somebody trying to govern these things on the inside. Uh, she arrives in a city where the budgetary system is precarious. She arrives in a city where the state finances are no better than the local finances. She arrives in a city where there are very strong union presences, uh, both with respect to the police force, which she's opposed to, and for the teachers, which she is generally in sympathy with. And she has to try and do all of this stuff in the face of a rising level of discontent on the one hand, and the knowledge that she's basically tapped out all of the local revenue sources that she could raise. Chicago real estate taxes are quite high. 
the state income taxes don't go to the city. Uh, there is a danger that people will continue to leave Chicago, particularly at the upper end, uh, just as they are leaving New York, which would further depress the uh, market. The real estate market in Chicago in the downtown area is quite dead. Uh, very few properties are moving. Uh, basically, if you talk to realtors that I have done, the sort of the general consensus is, is that uh, uh, units in Chicago have probably depreciated by 20% or so in the last year or so as a combination of the unrest on the one hand and the COVID uh, situation on the other. Uh, in an effort to deal with this, what we do is we have two kinds of restrictions. The city has imposed a quasi form of quarantine. I mean, it's a rather serious thing so that anybody who comes into the city, even if they test COVID negative, is supposed to quarantine themselves for 14 days, which is going to kill commercial activity inside the city. Even from within Illinois? No, from outside the state in a series of designated states. I mean, uh, and they're fairly heavy fines that go up to $7,000 for the two-week period. Uh, And for COVID, people who have tested COVID negative, this is, in fact, a very low probability that, A, you have anything, and, B, that you're going to transmit anything, even if you turn out to have it. Uh, How is the quarantine, excuse me for interrupting, how is the quarantine mandate enforced? It's not. We don't know. Um, Look, I will give you my guess on this because there is no enforcement mechanism built into this statute or the one that's in New York. But the way I think it would be enforced is not going to be against individual scofflaws who come in from Tulsa, Oklahoma. It's that if you're running a convention and you have large numbers of people coming in from out of state, what they will do is they will go to the convention, get the registration list, and work off of that in order to figure out whether or not the quarantine has been observed. So you can't run major events, even though it may well be that individuals who are coming to visit their brother-in-law will find themselves protected. So a sign of this was that Columbia College and Barnard College both announced that they were suspending all fall classes on campus, and they gave us the reason the the two-week quarantine that was going to be imposed upon New York. That one essentially says if you're COVID negative, you're clear, so long as you've been tested within three days of arrival. And given the backlog on testing and so forth and the unreliability of the system, a large institution is perfectly within its rights when it says, we're going to back off on on trying to do things because we cannot put ourselves into a position where we have collective responsibility. Do you think this is overdoing it? I think the quarantines are overdoing it. Yeah. Yes. Look, I mean, it's so difficult to unpack what's going on with respect to this situation because all of the basic numbers are completely tainted. And uh, what happens is if you take the raw unadjusted numbers about the number of people who have suffered from COVID illnesses, which is now about 170,000 people, you can start to say, Oh my God, this is a very, very serious thing. Yeah. You try to back it out into its various components. Yeah. It turns out that it looks much less ominous. Um, you start with the fact that a large number of people who died of this were in fact infected by government yeah. action. Uh, that may be as many as 25 or 30,000 people. There you is talking a, about the nursing home thing in New York and New Jersey? In New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Mass, you know, Michigan. It's a lot of it. The, the high volume states were all in the Northeast. And of course, the numbers that you see are in fact also misleading because they report these things at the date that they are reported. They don't occur them, report them as the date that they occurred. So if you look at some of these curves, what happens? You see these strange spikes. Uh, and why is that? Because somebody has decided to reclassify 2,000 deaths as COVID deaths, and they do it in late May. But these are deaths which, if they were COVID deaths, would have happened in April anyhow. And so you get a very high peak, but the way in which it looks, it kind of spreads itself out. 
Um, after about June 15th, the situation in New York State had run its course and it's relatively stable. It has not gone up. In fact, the numbers are record lows all the way through. Uh, but there's this fear of the second wave. And, you know, it's not an idle fear on the one hand, uh, but it's the question is, do you think you're going to stop the second wave by, by trying to put a quarantine, which is going to be very porous? Answer, I think, is no. Do you think you're going to be able to stop this by having everybody wear masks? I think the answer is no. They're quite they're insufficient to the task. I mean, I somebody asked me what my policy is on masks, and I tell them in one sentence, if it is at all possible, I will never go to a place where a mask is required because I just don't believe that they're going to give me protection. And I do think that in some cases, the, the crowds may be the source of some kinds of difficulties. Uh, but, you know, the claims for masks are extraordinarily strong. The uh, Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, the Washington University operation, says that they think they could knock down future uh, harm in this particular area by 60,000 people by wearing masks. And again, you know, as an economist and a lawyer, ask yourself, well, marginal to what? Uh, you already have masks in the cases where they matter most. And so putting masks on people who are walking in the woods or in golf courses, is that going to really do anything? And you know, you also have, uh, I was just going to say, once, once the politics of this gets rolling, it seems that government actors have to, have to do something to be seen to be doing something and they have to find rationales for what they do. And so they're going to imbue whatever little statistic or study uh, fosters their uh, favorite policy. And you're going to get a lot of public decision-making that's not tethered by any reality check. It's, it's all kind of putting forward a marketing program that persuade the public that you are a leader taking action and so on. Yes. I mean, the way Cuomo does it, he says it was really high in April. I of course was not responsible for that. And it's really low now. So I take all the credit for all the decline. That That's the way he's done where in fact, the decline is probably a result of the natural evolutionary forces that take place when people avoid the virus and viruses tend to get attenuated. But what happens is it goes in the opposite direction. I, I, I've been much maligned for believing that evolutionary theory applies to the viruses, but I think the point is it's a two-way ratchet. Uh, so if you really have very close contracts, severe viruses will be able to pass themselves across and the strains will get stronger, which is probably what happened in the nursing home. That stuff then starts to leak out uh, through workers, through visitors or whatever, and some of it hits the general population. On the other hand, if you don't have any of these kinds of natural, rather human forces in there, and people start to shy away from one another, uh, the people who have the virulent bias, bias will die relatively quickly, and the more benign forms will pass on. In the limit, then, you know, it's an interesting kind of theorem, is that you will have infinite transmissibility of a virus, instantaneous, and zero harm. And what it will do is it will just become another piece of useless DNA of which the human body has a lot of it. Uh, so, so this is a this is a theoretical on. speculation about the dynamics of uh, the system. But is there any evidence to give you confidence that this prediction would bear out? Well, I think there have been a several studies which have certainly pointed to the nature of the mutations getting stronger and very rapid rates of substitution that have taken place. Um, there was one study, I think it was in the New York Times, where they had a benign and a uh, sort of a, a more virulent version of the gene. And what happens is it goes from 90-10 one way to 90-10 the other way in a matter of, I think, one or two months. Uh, that's pretty fast moving it. If you start looking at the AIDS literature, of course, there's a lot of evidence of that taking place, that the disease has become much more attenuated. If you go back and you start looking at something like syphilis, remember when it first was communicated, it was an absolutely deadly disease. And then slowly there's a kind of coevolution that takes place uh, by the mechanisms that I'm talking about. 
But what's happening now is I used to think it was a one-directional situation when I wrote about this, you know, four or five months ago. But it's very clear it's going in both directions. That is, you have certain populations that are getting more virulent viruses and others that are getting less. And trying to figure out what the sum of the two effects are make it extremely difficult to give empirics. Let me just give you, since we're talking about this, uh, about some of the projections. And and I'm just going to take not my own projections. Uh, I made some incredibly stupid statements, which I will not repeat for fear that somebody would believe it. But my original impression as of April 5th, let's say, was that this was going to be a serious situation like any other flu. So the 2018 flu, 100,000 people died and so forth. And the uh, Washington University study that I referred to had the number at about 66,000 with a range one way or the other. And then all of a sudden, this stuff gets completely exceeded. Everybody's predictions turn out to be wrong. And the only explanation for it is that nobody factored into the situation the nursing home fiasco. And once you put that on top of it, and the very old population uh, that is highly vulnerable, the numbers started to soar. Um, As I mentioned to you, the the guess now by that same organization is about 300,000 dead uh, by December 1st. Uh, But again, the numbers are highly difficult to interpret. The first is the nursing home stuff that you have to take out. That's probably 25 to 50,000 people, a non-trivial number. I don't know exactly what it is. Nobody has revealed it. In fact, in New York State, uh, one of the things that has happened is Cuomo will not essentially reveal the the raw data on this stuff and has published a very dubious study saying uh, nothing that I did had anything to do with this. It was just errant healthcare workers going from one facility to another who certainly can be change agents. But if you're putting in, you know, 10 healthcare workers is against 10,000 people coming out of various homes. I think it's more likely that the individual citizens are there. You wait, wait, wait a minute. Let me just understand. The CDC does not have uniform requirements on the states to report data uh, about this kind of thing? No. I mean, what happens is, again, you know, it's subtle. Uh, the operative value is where did you get the virus? Where, if you actually look at the Cuomo studies, he's interested whether people die in hospital or not. So essentially, if somebody catches the virus inside a nursing home and then is transferred to a hospital, uh, they are recorded on the city's or the state's books as though they are uh, the deaths that have taken place um, in the hospital, not in the nursing home. So you systematically underdo this stuff. If you look as a, you know, just a general matter, all previous situations, they give you very wide bands for trying to figure out what the number of deaths is attributable to, say, the virus in 2018. If you notice, this count is, you know, to the person, right? It's 169,784. Well, right. that's false precision. Right. I mean, it can't possibly be that kind of number. Then there's right. the conflation with comorbidities. There's the problem of probables being treated as certain. Right. Uh, there's a heavy concentration in old age homes. So you're trying to figure out what the risks of the general population is. You have to correct for all of that. Uh, but if you don't correct for all of that, which we tend not to do, you get the other thing. And then on the other side, I, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of this huge battle of HCQ. I can even pronounce it. Hydroxychloroquine. How do you like that? Hydroxychloroquine, yeah. Yes. Good for you. I mean, uh, it's... Yeah, you know, they, I heard that two of the big studies had to be withdrawn that had, had negative uh, findings about hydroxychloroquine. One yeah. in the New Journal of Medicine and the more important one was in the Lancet. And, you know, yeah. it, was, it was absolutely apparent on the face of the studies. These were non-existent institutions fabricating data. Uh, uh, and then when you get fairly good studies from the Henry Ford situation and so forth, what you discover is, in fact, these things are routinely pilloried by Anthony Fauci, whom I regard as simply wholly behind the times in understanding the way in which you tried to do uh, clinical evaluations. 
Um, it's an interesting philosophical question. Are you top down or are you bottom up? Um, and so these guys all believe in the sort of double blind clinical trials that start to take place. And you try to randomize these things. These are very difficult to do under disease conditions, to put it mildly. And what happens is they only check single entities. So they will do HCQ without the zinc and without the erythromycin. And it turns out it has no effect. And as Harvey Rich points out, he says, well, the two things you have to understand, this stuff is useless once people have gotten to the stage where they have pneumonia and what they call a cytokine reaction. But if you get people early on and you give the combination of the three drugs, it works so that the HCQ is the attacking agent, roughly speaking. The zinc, which has been used in other situations, is what you call a transport agent. Um, it's got some fancy term, which is ionoclast or some such thing like that. And what it does is it sort of allows the HCQ to enter into the body of the cell where it could attack the virus. And the erythromycin is a kind of an anti-inflammatory, which prevents things from getting out of place, right? And so if you've kind of used the combination, uh, they claim it works. And there are a lot of physicians who, who've basically bet their lives on it, some of whom are quite hysterical. Uh, but when they explain it to me, it seems really quite rational. But when you check drugs uh, through the FDA, you only check a single judge. You don't do clinical trials on combinations. And you don't do clinical trials on combinations that you constantly vary in quantity. So uh, the way the physicians do it is they looked at the way in which the zinc transport matrix and, and, and AZ was used earlier, and then they throw it in and they experiment a little bit, and then they come up with what they think to be a standard sort of protocol. And uh, it turns out that this is not science if you're dealing with the uh, the FDA and they refuse to acknowledge this stuff. It's, I, think uh, it's I, I just want to get your observation of, on this, which is that uh, it, it strikes me as very interesting. The president made early on some very affirmative statements about hydroxychloroquine. Yes. Uh, he was pilloried as uh, being out of his depth and uh, being irresponsible and pushing something that hadn't been, quote unquote, scientifically tested. So his craven, simplistic stupidity and bad leadership is juxtaposed to science and objective investigation. Yes, it certainly but is. But the story that you're telling makes me uh, feel that the putative objectivity and you know, sort of uh, apolitical thing is all a is all a sham. There is no apolitical. The whole and 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 it leaves me uh, wondering: what should I believe? Well, where, uh, where, me, are, where is the expertise? Okay, let me do this. One of the things I've done over many years, and I teach a course in the FDA, um, you know, which is trying to figure out exactly what the relationship is between clinical trials on the one hand and, and drug approvals. And long before this thing came up, it became quite clear that the, the double-blind studies are essentially a very dangerous artifact by which to do this with certain kinds of disease agents. Uh, Double-blind studies tend to work well if you're trying to figure out what kind of drug will work well in, clo in controlling cholesterol because you can get very large populations, divide them into half, and, and see what's going to go on, and you're not dealing with life-threatening conditions, at least in the short run. Uh, but with disease, it's always a matter of improvisation. Uh, and so what happens is if we start looking at disease treatment long before we get to the current situation, it turns out that off-label uses essentially dominate on-label uses for most drugs. Uh, so what happens is the way to understand the process is clinical trials go in three stages. Stage number one is essentially phase one trial is you give huge doses of a drug to somebody, and if they don't die, then you say we're going to check it to see whether or not it has therapeutic effect. Uh, so nobody wants to take a drug that's going to kill you en masse. Uh, but once you pass that, then you go through these other things, and drugs then get 
approved for clinical use under the FDA safety and effectiveness standards. When it's out there, the current institutional structure is such that physicians are entitled to make off-label uses of drugs, even though it is actually a very disputed question as to whether or not a pharmaceutical manufacturer could promote the off-label drugs that are there. So what happens is voluntary institutions sort of fill the gap. And one of these institutions, which I did some work on 10 years ago, is called the NCCN, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network. And what this is, is a clearinghouse. And what they do is they get all the information from all possible sources about how these drugs do. And then they start asking the kinds of questions that you can't get to a clinical trial. Uh, So one of the questions you always want to ask is, what's the sequence in which you use drugs, right? What's the first line treatment? What's the second line treatment? What's the third line treatment? FDA just says you can sell it or you can sell it. It doesn't tell somebody whether you start with this one or that. The second thing is the FDA only gives drugs, HCQ and nothing else. But it turns out that virtually all of these drugs are most effective when they're used in combination. Uh, so that you may have one drug which is a, a treating agent and the yeah, other one which is a palliative. So I'm going to yeah. really give you something that's going to mess up your stomach, and now I'm going to give you something else along with it which is going to control the ulcers. And you don't test for that. Uh, FDA does not look at foreign data, uh, but many drugs have been used in a long time overseas. Clinical trials suffer a fatal weakness in some cases, is which given the patent limitations, uh, you have to run the trial in relatively short term in order to get it on the market. You can't figure out long-term effects. But if the drug has been in use overseas for many years and you can get data from there and put it into the registry, now in a sense you have a broader database both in terms of number of cases and length of duration. And so these guys then come together and they start giving these sorts of recommendations. And it turns out that it is now, I mean, a basic rule is, if it turns out that the uh, organizations like the HCCN or the NCCN think that this is the appropriate way to do it, that is sufficient for insurance purposes and it becomes the standard of care for malpractice. So essentially what the the, the FDA does is it gets something on the market and then off-label uses by this method predominate everywhere. And that's exactly what's being done with respect to HCQ. Uh, But somebody like Fauci is essentially mired in the path, and he believes that only, quote, valid clinical trials will establish anything. And it turns out that that's just much too slow to be able to be done. And it's also much too, shall we say, rigid. All these things are done incrementally. Right? So some doc says, well, I tried this and it was too much. I said, well, I tried that and it was too little. And so somebody says, let's try it in the middle. It's all anecdotal. Uh, but as the anecdotes start to spread, the consensus starts to learn. And if you sort of think about this, there are many cases in which customary knowledge is, in fact, better than formal deductions. That's the battle here. And this is one of them. This is fascinating, um, Richard, but this is not what we signed on to talk about, but this well, is fascinating. Talk about you want. Back to Chicago. No, no I want to I know if Lori Lightfoot is in over her head. I want to yeah. know what's going on with law and order in the city. Uh, I want to know the role that race is playing. I want to know the implications for economic development in Chicago, because I damn sure wouldn't sink 50 or $100 million on North Michigan Avenue right now if it was me making the decision. So you I'm just wondering what you think about all of that. Well, I told you, the, com- the combination of the quarantine, the people coming in, the general prohibitions, the very aggressive lockdown, have slowed the city to a crawl. Uh, it also turns out that the disaffection has been extremely large. And so, are, you know, you, you could look around and get lists, public lists, of the 10 or 12 demonstrations that are going to start to take place in the next week, uh, most of which will be nonviolent, but some of which will be turning violent. 
And then there was a serious problem, which we had, I guess it was about a week ago, in which what you saw is you didn't see just looting, uh, random, spontaneous action. People literally brought their U-Hauls in from various places, came to Michigan Avenue, dumped stuff into the various kinds of trucks, and then went away. And at this point, the mayor went rightly ballistic about this. She said, this has nothing to do with George Floyd. You're just driving lawful businesses out. And she has pushed it. Uh, but what happens is the Chicago police are gun-shy to some extent because they've been subject to all sorts of restrictions. There was a court order induced by the ACLU on stop and frisk, which has reduced their kinds of effectiveness. Uh, there is the sense that every time you start to do something, you're going to be treated as though you're an aggressor under these circumstances. Um, and so the actual case that precipitated the last riot uh, involved a young man of about 20 years of age who was basically being tracked by the police after there'd been a call. He stopped, turned around, and shot at the police. The police shot him. And by the time this thing got on Twitter, it was a young boy, probably unarmed, who had been molested by the police. And this just became a single. That is, what happens is, if you know there's alert, sort of a, an amount of political unrest, what people then do is they, they treat this as a sign for us to, to join the riot. So uh, up come the messages on Twitter and so forth. Let's go downtown and loot, essentially. And it's awfully difficult to start to restrain that. Um, my view is you just have to put barricades up, pull up bridges and stuff like that. The mayor is now doing that. The curfew was just lifted this morning. And you walk and you look outside in Chicago, and it's relatively calm at this particular point in time. But it's a smoldering situation. It's also a case in which the city is overinvested in public expenditures. It is not prepared to make any fundamental reform in the way in which it provides services. So uh, whatever monopoly positions are located in the city clerk's office or a thousand other bureaus, uh, do not look for any reduction in staff or any reduction in mission that's going to start to take place. And so what you do is, you know, you look in the downtown area, there are a lot of cranes going up, So and they will finish these projects out. Uh, but the more important figure is the population moves, which are out of the city. Um, and the same thing is true, of course, in New York, for exactly the same kind of reason. More dramatic in New York, I think, than it is in Chicago, uh, because New York is a much more expensive city. Chicago, it, it's really a beautiful city when it starts to work. Its lakefront is unmatched anywhere in the world. The downtown area is very attractive. Uh, the suburbs nearby are just fine. But the governance issues have really put this, and right now, I mean, there's a flashpoint uh, with the uh, police contracts and their renegotiations. There's a complete impasse, as I mentioned earlier on. And so what happens is we lumber from day to day, wondering whether or not this thing is going to change. There are efforts. What's the source of the discontent? Why are people so angry out in the neighborhoods? Why are the black people in those neighborhoods so easily, uh, you know, induced into this kind of, uh, you know, it would seem to be counterproductive behavior. Aren't they well, destroying their city? Um, it's it's extremely difficult to explain, but essentially the city of Chicago has two halves, much like Washington, D.C. does. And there are large portions on the south side which are losing population, large numbers of vacant lots of one kind or another, many people who are trapped there who don't think they have particularly good opportunities. Uh, on the one hand, they're afraid of gentrification, which would make their property more valuable because many of them are tenants and the gains will start to go to the landlord. Uh, there's a huge effort to try to get collective bargaining agreements or community benefit agreements, as they're called, same initials, same practice, to do this. Um, I've worked against the Obama Center in Jackson, in Jackson Park, not on the south side, where it could actually do some good. 
Um, and what happens is the whole thing, in fact, is now tied down because what kind of community benefit agreement is going to be made? Who's going to get the jobs on construction? Is there going to be a housing program going to be put there? And so what's happened is there are now all sorts of sort of mandates going into the south side of Chicago saying, well, you have to build a certain amount of affordable housing units if you wish to build market rate units. And, you know, this is essentially a price control system uh, because you cannot raise market rates indefinitely given a market constraint. Uh, to cover the loss on the affordable units. If you put the number at 10%, you can survive. You put it at 20 to 30%, these things completely fail. Uh, and so what happens is no development is going to start to take place because of the conditions. Nobody in Chicago has the sort of classical liberal approach, which I said is figure out what the restrictions are on new construction and then try to remove them in those vacant areas so that people could start to come in. And what you'd hope to get is if there's a large pent-up demand for modest price housing, often in multiple dwelling units, uh, you could put them in in many blank pots. I mean, I've actually studied the, in connection with my litigation on the Obama Presidential Center, uh, the map of the south side of Chicago, particularly near Washington Park, and there are just huge numbers of vacant lots there. And what the city ought to do is just give them away on condition that somebody builds something with there in the next year or two, and you can start to turn this around. But there is in the city of Chicago and uh, throughout the state today, a complete suspicion of any form of market enterprise. So uh, the choices are simple. You remove the restrictions, let private capital come in and see what happens, and you'll get growth, and you'll get it at all areas of the market, different prices of housing, as you've always been able to do. All what you can do is you could clamp down on the developments by private parties and then tax and subsidize the developments that you think to be appropriate. And it turns out that the taxes... Uh, that you impose will basically kill other forms of activities, and the units that you will build will satisfy nobody in terms of what they provide. Uh, and Chicago seems to be pretty much committed to this second alternative of restrict and subsidize as opposed to deregulate and watch things happen. Okay, you've been thinking about this for a long time, and I just started thinking about it, but an idea occurs to me, which is that implicitly the politics of this is reflecting the idea that tenants, because of place, because they live in a place, mm -hmm. have some kind of tacit property right that is not being acknowledged when the developer comes and buys out or when the new, you know, uh, remodeling and they upgrade the thing and now the tenants are bid out of the market. They, Because they are there, they have a, a kind of right. Why not acknowledge that right explicitly and let them take the, you know, get bribe them. You know, why not just pay them off and let them take the money, put it in the bank, move out of town or, or pay the higher rent or whatever it is they want to do? Well, I mean, in fact, that is done in some communities with mixed success. Uh, uh, one of the difficulties you have with that, these sort of in-loop payments and so forth, is they use two schemes. Uh, one of them, which actually may make some sense, you say, look, we're going to remove you from this particular place. And when we put the, up the building there, what we will do is we will give you a reduced rent on the places so long as we can put the rest of the stuff on market. And that has been proposed, and it can actually work uh, to a limited degree. In other places, what you do is you require people to buy substitute housing for them in order to move them out. It's the California solution. Uh, but what you're doing is you now have to give them the subsidized housing at the same rate that they got their current housing, and you have to buy in very expensive neighborhoods. And so when this has been tried in San Francisco, it turns out to be just terrible. Uh, the best alternative in many ways is what we call an in-lieu fund. In order for you to get the rights to develop, what you have to do is to put X thousand dollars into a particular fund for each unit that you displace. 
and then the city will give it to some developers as a subsidy for something else. So you can certainly, basically what you do is you give people a right, and then you make the right cashable outable, as it were, right? That somebody can buy you out of this thing, as opposed to giving you a veto right. So it's essentially, to use the old literature, what we do is we treat this as a liability rule, not as a property right. That is, you're entitled to a certain amount of fixed money, but you can't stop it. The difficulty is how you set the particular rates. And if you set them too high, it turns out that nothing whatsoever starts to happen. Then what happens is you start to do this under other circumstances. So uh, in California, the problem arose. Do you take this device, which was sustained in San Francisco when you ripped down buildings, and then apply it in areas like San Jose, where there's nothing to rip down, but a developer just wants to go in? And do you then require, when you're displacing nobody, that you put money into this kind of a fund? Uh, the California Supreme Court said it was perfectly okay to do this about a couple of years ago. In consequence, a place like San Jose, which has a lot of vacant land and a you know, really booming community, has virtually no new construction whatsoever because the tax has been set at a level that's too high. Um, and, and so as we always say about these things, um, uh, uh, all of these things essentially are, are lasting. They're not inelastic. And if you set them low, you can kind of survive. You set them too high, uh, you could wreck it. So you could run a rent control system, claim, right? Um, if, in fact, you allow increase. I'm not in favor of it. Uh, mm-hmm. But they always allow increases, but they always make them lower than the cost of inflation. They don't take into account all sorts of other adaptations. And so I want to come back to Chicago. Uh, why yeah. did the Chicago Police Department not use the force sufficient to keep U-Haul driving uh, thieves from crashing through North Ave- Michigan Avenue uh, uh, storefronts and carrying them. Why didn't they simply stop them, shoot them well, if necessary? I, I'm, look, I can only tell you that there was a sort of difference between the first ones in June and the second one. In the first one, it, you know, the peaceful protests and the, and the mobsters were mixed together. And the mayor, you know, if you walk around the streets of Chicago and you ask people who were on the ground at the time, she said she ordered the police to stand down. Uh, The second time, I think, what happened is this thing happened with such ferocity uh, that they couldn't get out there. And it's also the case that uh, when you look at these things, there's a kind of an ugly choice that you have to make. It's not pleasant. Are you prepared to allow people to use deadly force in order to enforce a blockade? If it turns out that you're not, then people will just run through it. Um, And what happens is the attitude is that there are enough of us, they can't stop us all. So you have eight or 10,000 looters and you make 40 arrests. Uh, you can do the calculations as well as I can. It's going to pay. Then afterwards, you have to decide whether or not you're going to prosecute them, even after you've arrested them. And there's going to be a lot of political pressure on you to let them go. After all, it's invidious discrimination that many people get away with it and not. And so the whole situation really starts to, to come down. We have too many taboos on what it is that we can do in this city. Um, it's a progressive situation. Chicago is not Portland uh, because Portland, radical politics have really taken hold. Chicago is a democratic town, but at least until the progressives took over more recently, it was a kind of a much more conservative, working class, union democratic town rather than a politically um, astute democratic town like New York City turns out to be. Chicago is not a big home of intellectuals who are going to remake the world. It's not a real home for socialists in one kind or another. It was traditionally lunch pot socialism or lunch pot Democrat. And, and who knows? Yeah, I, think I know that that's my, home, it's my hometown, Richard. It's my hometown. 
And, and, uh, yeah, and am I describing it incorrectly? No, I mean, you're not. Yeah, I grew up under the old uh, original Richard J. Daly uh, mayor <laughs> mayoralty. I was there in 1968, you know. Um, but, uh, okay, if you're not prepared to use deadly force in order to protect someone's property, you're really not prepared to take to protect their property. What's wrong well, with that I mean, statement? Well, I mean, this is one of the most single difficult questions in the entire law. It seems so, so easy to state and so impossible to solve is what's the permissible level of force to use in self-defense or in defense of property? Correct. And That's on the, the one hand, you don't want things to be excessive. Everybody agrees with that. But it's very difficult to know what excessive is under the uncertainties of a given moment. And you don't want things to be disproportionate. So nobody would say if you see somebody lifting a candy bar from a, a store that you can shoot the person in order to protect property. Right. And so everything in effect then is there. So what you do is you have a shifting level of seriousness of offense on the one side and a wide range of sanctions of un uncertain worth on the other, and you're trying to match these things up. And so one thing you could say is, well, why would you want to use deadly force if you could use rubber bullets? Why would you want to use deadly force if you could use larger barricades? Why would you want to use deadly force if, in fact, you can use, you know, mace or something to shut things down? One of the problems, of course, that the city of Chicago faces now is that when these people come, they come armed. And sometimes they have tasers and mace and something like that, and they use them against the police force. And, you know, this leads to this crazy situation. One of the really strong and, I think, sensible criticism is the remilitarization of police forces with excess army gear are being sent out, right? Then you start to see what's coming back on the other side. And you say, okay, we're not going to use any of this stuff. What are we going to send these people with a truncheon? Um, when somebody is using heavy weaponry against them. And so what happens is the arms rate starts to escalate. And you need to have very strong community backing for the police under these circumstances. And what you do and is... And you, you don't have that in Chicago. You, you have it more in Chicago than you have it in Portland uh, or in Minneapolis. But the, somehow or the, the thought that the way you stop this problem is to give additional social services to communities, it's a pipe dream. Uh, you're going to give services to people who are hungry and to people who are sick and so forth. They're not the guys who are going out and, and committing these riots. These are 22, 23, 24-year-old characters, and they're not going to be happy with the kind of money if, in fact, it increases the opportunities they could get from vandalism. So you, okay. you can't defund the police and hope to survive. I've been watching some of the video online, and the people that I see running through the storefront windows and carrying stuff out are all black. Now, I'm just imagining, how is that going to play in the working class, Italian and Polish uh, and Irish and, uh, for that matter, Jewish? I assume there's not much working class Jewish population left in Chicago. But in any case, how's that playing in the white neighborhoods of Chicago? And what's the implication of that for uh, the future uh, of the city? The most interesting response is silence. That is, if you're talking about the neighborhoods on the west side and the north side in Chicago and so forth, I've heard very little coming out from anybody one way or another because those are not the areas that are attacked. Essentially, why would you want to loot the place where the stuff isn't? You remember what Willie Sutton said about banks, right? Yeah, we, that's where the money is. Now, why do you rob the bank? And the question is, why are you a robber? And he answers, well, I rob banks because that's where the money is, right? 
Well, that's the same thing with respect to looters. And so they will go into affluent areas and these communities will be left aside. And there's a little bit on the part of everybody to fear that if you start to oppose this, you're going to be called a racist. And so therefore you want to keep there. And then there's this very unhappy sentiment which says, eat me last. So if you're going to take somebody else on first and I at least got a temporary buy, my best strategy is to remain relatively quiet. I, you know, try to follow the papers reasonably conscientious, but uh, maybe you've seen something else, but I've seen almost no response whatsoever from working class white people. Uh, the issue that you then have to say is they may not talk, but how will they vote? Right? That's my thought. And so the last poll that I saw had Biden ahead by nine. I don't believe that. Um, uh, what happens is, remember, that's nation- the statewide, that's a statewide poll or no, Chicago? Nationwide poll. Oh, nationwide. Yeah, nationwide. And so, you know, but it's, as we say, it's like everything else, because given the electoral system, if you've got a 40 point lead in California and then you go to 45, Hillary Clinton learned it doesn't get you any votes in Wisconsin. That is all votes are not created equal under any system that is not a popular election. Right? And, so and I think there's probably ones. a silent Trump support of people who are not willing to tell a pollster that they support him, but actually do. Um, I, I think that that is becoming more true. I mean, look. If you ask what he's done, as opposed to what he has said, I mean, every time I blanch because he says something silly, right? And I'm not alone on that. Then yeah. what about the deal in Portland? It was a good deal. I mean, the governor got to blast him as being a snarky, gratuitous interfere, but they actually protected federal buildings after the federal governments get in there. You look in the Middle East, and, you know, the arrangement that uh, whatever is that Jared Kushner put together in which... Yeah, the- oh, the UAE, yeah. I mean, this what what he. I mean, it is the greatest triumph of medieval peace you can imagine. The Israelis had one death instinct, which was formal annexation, which gives them very little and gets them an enormous amount of abuse. And what it needs to do is to get allies, and so it got rid of its liability and picked up an asset. And it turns out that their position is stronger now than ever before. Uh, and the Palestinians are without support. And of course, I mean, they deserve to be without support. They can't run democratic institutions to their own. The constant joke is that uh, uh, they have bossed aside, right? He is now in the 17th year of a four-year term of his presidency. I mean, this is the way uh, things start to work. And so, I mean, I go through the various Trump stuff. Um, I agreed with him on the Iranian sanctions. I agree with him about pulling out of the Paris Accords and so forth. And so you're always left with the question of what do you think about the Trump administration as opposed to Trump, right? And I work with occasionally with the government. I, I, I talk to them about their reform of the NEPA program, which is a big issue in Chicago with the Obama Center, National Environmental Protection Act, or Policy Act, rather. I think the reforms are excellent. Um, and they got it more or less in the right way and that the so-called environmental criticisms are misguided. So, I mean, he does have a fairly solid record of achievement. Uh, as you well know, uh, it turns out that uh, overall growth between Obama and uh, Trump about the same, maybe Trump a little bit better. But if you're actually trying to talk about the position of the underclass, the poor, the minorities, and so forth, they did much better under Trump than they did under Obama. Why is that? Because you remove restrictions, are a lot more valuable than giving subsidies. Right? Same He's man. a racist. Uh, he threatens American institutions. He, he doesn't believe in democracy. Uh, you know, I mean, he, he's, he's orange man. Why does one say that? I mean, you can charge it, but all the political abuse that we've witnessed. Well, I mean, the most recent is that he's trying to undermine the post office because he wants to cast doubt about a um, um, postal mediated election outcome. He thinks he's going to lose. He wants to be able to say after the fact that the result is not 
credible or is not legitimate. Well, I mean, look, the post office cannot handle the surge, given all the other surges that are taking place at the same time. Uh, there was a nice editorial in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, what you do is you create a national crisis. If you have people send their ballots in two weeks before and they can't be counted until two weeks after, and you have closed states in which these things are likely to make a difference. Um, I don't think that this system can actually work. It, it's extremely difficult to run a system of mail ballots, as you know, misaddressed, misfiled. Somebody purloins some of the ballots out of the box, put some of the others in there. Uh, fraud control essentially requires that you have uniform control under what they call a chain of custody. Chain of custody, yeah. Uh, what it means is that every single stage, when the thing goes from one person to another, there has to be systematic oversight yeah. so as to prevent something from being taken out or put into the stream of commerce. That's very much more difficult to do with a mail system, which goes through five or six stages, than it is with a voting machine. Um, so, I mean, if you start looking at this in a more you know, objective sense, you realize just how difficult these things are. And if you remember the Iowa system where they put this elaborate plan, they couldn't get anything to work out. It was Democrat upon Democrat upon Democrat. Yeah. Glenn is a really underappreciated virtue under these circumstances. Rube Goldberg machines never work when you have large numbers of cases that have to be piled through them in a very short period of time. So to give you just another illustration, at NYU, where we're trying desperately to open up classes in there, what do you think the single biggest bottleneck is to doing it well? So you have all these people coming into the halls between classes. It's not when they're sitting in the room that is the danger, but now what you have, you've got all of a sudden you've got a thousand students going back and forth in a 10-minute period. How do you control for that? So it's always the peak load problem that test the situation. It's never the sort of the steady state problem. And uh, the one way to put it in a slightly more technical fashion is that it's the variance, right? Which stresses the system. Too many highs, too many lows. Same thing with solar energy, right? You get all the stuff you want when you don't want it and none of the stuff you want when you want it. Um, do you, be- do you believe these- that, um, that uh, maximizing uh, mail-in voting uh, favors the Democrats? Yes, why? Well, I, I think, I mean, I think Why? Because, what? Why? 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 Because I think what happens is they will be better able to mobilize populations in, in, in minority and underserved communities. It used to be the other way around uh, when mail boning was confined to military people, right? Overseas. So then why isn't that an argument for mail-in voting, notwithstanding all the concerns that you just well, expressed? it is an argument for it if, in fact, you think the system is accurate. But if it turns out that what you think is that the system is, yes, this is a system which would run, say, 60-40 in favor of the Democrats, but by the time you get through the chain of control stuff and the delay stuff and Mayor Daley stealing Chicago in 1960, now the number looks to be 80-20. I mean, I am somebody who's, you know, lawyers start with the grease and the dirt in systems. That is, <laughs> our, our relative advantage is understanding transactions costs in the Tosian sense. And what I have learned over the years is that simple systems are much more robust than are much more complicated systems. And it's a lack of robust. Simple rules for a complex world. Isn't that another one of those Epstein books (laughs) (laughs) that I read when I was a kid? (laughs) It came out in 1995. No, that, the simple, that was 25 years ago, Richard. I was a kid 25 years ago. Well, and the taking book was 35 years ago. I mean, you know, I'm in my 53rd year of teaching. Wow. And they said, wow, oh, good on you. 
Yeah, how many years have you been in the business? I started in '76, so oh, yeah, that's that's going to be 44, 44. years. <laughs> no, not my contemporary, for heaven's sake, right? Um, you can't avoid it. But yes, the seriously though, aren't we headed for something that's going to make Bush versus Gore look like child's play? Aren't we headed for an election day when no one's going to know who won for weeks afterwards, and where there's going to be court fighting for months afterwards? You do not have to persuade me of that. I was on one national public television show where we talked about Bush v. Gore and the difficulties. This is with one state, Florida, right, in the county. And there were a bunch of people there who said, well, I mean, we can work this out amicably. There'll be no problem. And this is what I said in response. I'm a lawyer. And this is the following thing that I said, is I'm just one lawyer. There are going to be 100 lawyers on that side and 100 lawyers on this side. And by the time you're one or two days into this battle, they will have come up with arguments on both sides that nobody ever dreamed of being possible. And then the other side will do the same thing. And this thing will just have an exponential rush. Um, that's one of the reasons, by the way, and, you know, as we come to the end, I assume, of this interview, uh, why it was such an important decision that the Supreme Court made rightly when my good friend Larry Lessig uh, decided that, well, we're going to allow for the faithless elected to depart from the standard rule, which says that if you're chosen to vote for X, you vote for X. And you know, there were several cases in which people voted for somebody else in an effort to try and force the election. And the Supreme Court was unanimous. It said you can't do that because it's just massive destabilization of the system. It can work okay if it's a symbolic vote. But if everybody in the New York delegation or in the California delegation is allowed to do this, then there's no transmission. The, there's a, a very instructive notion about the constitutional flaw here. Maybe I should end on this note. The Electoral College was patterned on the College of Cardinals. Essentially, it was supposed to be a deliberative body. I didn't know that, actually. Yeah. So what you do is you put these guys and you check this one and that one, and then these guys sit down in a room and they pick the best and the brightest, according to either David Halbert's name or Alexander Hamilton, depending on whom you're reading on the day. And they come up with a vote. Well, the moment you start to do this, what happens is you have a problem that the Cardinals don't face. The Cardinals are all principals. They're not agents, right? Right. Uh, all the electors are agents, not principal. And so what happens is how do you bind your agent if, in fact, they're allowed to deliberate? The answer is you can't. Uh, right. So what happened is they put into place a fiction. And the fiction is the pledge delegate, which means once you put in there, you are my agent, but you have no discretion whatsoever. You're a messenger. And we don't even need you. We could just have a piece of paper going there. Uh, so what they did is they made it so that you could get accurate reflections of what the popular did. In a moment you allow the agents to have any degree of decision, the thing goes ahead. And if you could imagine what would happen if the faithless elector switched the election and the folks back home thought this was just crazy. So the Supreme Court said, we're not going to touch this stuff. Um, and then you have to do political reforms. The only one that could work is to say, we're going to give the electoral votes two for the Senate by the state, and then each congressional district gets an electoral vote, which is what they do in Nebraska. Uh, that is administrable and it doesn't give you problems and it allows for a minority to express itself if they're concentrated in one district and you could do it in California. I have no particular objection against that. It's just a freewheeling situation. So there's a long lesson here. I take it that you are not in favor of uh, eliminating the Electoral College altogether. No, No, because then you have a nationwide fraud recount and you said that Bush v. Gord is going to create some... Can you imagine doing this nationally if you had a 1% difference? And you had to recount every county. And you have to make sure that, see, see the other thing about it is uh, the, the great thing, California's all Democrat. Why do they have to cheat? 
But the moment it's a national election, you know why they have to cheat. Wow. I had never thought of that either. That's very oh. interesting. The, <laughs> the incentive to cheat <laughs> becomes universal once you go to a national uh, yeah. headcount. I mean, anyway, uh, yeah. Go ahead. Bizarre. I'm going to give you the last word. No, I mean, look, it's been great fun. I still would like to talk to you about, at some point, the Obama presidential Center. Oh, yeah. I'll come back to you in a month or so, and, we, and we'll get that one in, Richard. This is uh, Glenn Lowry at the Glenn Show with Richard Epstein of uh, the New York University Law School, also lecturing at the University of Chicago Law School. And Thank you, Richard. Hello at the Hoover Institution. Uh, let's not leave that out. Thanks That's a lot, it. Richard. Okay. Thank you so much, Glenn.